Hey guys, welcome back to the Allen and Warren Report. You want to say hi? Greetings, everybody. <laughs> it's uh, we're actually recording this. Um, this is we won't be doing this again for a little while because after <clears throat> after this weekend, uh, for the holidays there, it's not going to be much travel scheduled. But we are once again recording a few days early. Uh, we're actually recording this Thursday night, and this will be out on Saturday. So hopefully. Uh, there isn't, we don't get majorly news cucked by anything between now and the weekend, but, um, Hey, what's up? You know, you're only hearing half of the show, right? And it's being indiscriminately, uh, interrupted with these sales pitches because we just don't know how else to get your attention and get you over there. Uh, our website, our podcasts are 100% listener funded. Uh, they are funded with your subscription. So if you could please do that, uh, help us out the right stuff. Biz slash paywall. Thanks. Yeah, I've got NJP travel this weekend, going to Texas, the Texas uh, regional event. That'll be a lot of fun. And uh, Dad and I are both going. So that's why we have to pre-record. But we got a pretty good show here. We're going to go through news in the first hour, number of things in the news. And then in the second hour, um, Emily and I went and saw the Napoleon film over, uh, well, earlier this week, actually, on Monday night. And I, I did a review of that on Modern Politics. But what I'm going to do on this show is do kind of a in the second hour, I'm going to do a bit of a deep dive on Napoleon and the Jews. Because Napoleon, there's people who, who say, oh, Napoleon was a great reformer and he, he uh, was very enlightened and did all this for the Jews. And he was very positive towards the Jews. But it's a little more complicated than that. And what he actually thought about them is is pretty based. Uh, but there's some some really I, I discovered a gem in a book that you got me actually um, by a, a French diplomat from the period that's just a lot of interesting diplomacy and and I I this was a while ago this was like a year ago I uncovered a gem of just unbelievable details about the Jews in Napoleonic France that that will confirm every bias you've ever had about Jews. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's amazing how little has changed. They, but, they hope this kind of this kind of stuff just gets memory hold, you know. It's, well, this is something you would never find on the internet, and you wouldn't even find it in a book on the subject. You, you, you know, this is something that I stumbled onto while reading a book about a French diplomat during the Napoleonic period, his memoirs. But uh, yeah, guys, it'll it'll knock your socks off in as far as how much it. It confirms every every bias we have, every every position we we have on the Jewish question. These were just commonly known things back then, uh, and it'll, and even in an, even in enlightened France, where there, it's under the Enlightenment and progressivism, and they're freeing the Jews from their ghetto. They still they still knew, and the Jews haven't changed one bit since then. But that'll be in the second hour. Uh, so in the first hour, let's go through some news. The big thing that will be probably out of the headlines by the weekend, but I, I didn't want to miss my chance to uh, to talk about it and, and also spit on his grave, the death of Henry Kissinger. Thank God, finally, at age 100, that Jew is finally dead. I remember him being, when I was in high school, he was, uh, you know, the guy with Nixon. And uh, he just... Uh, and then he was like a super kike, you know. And and uh, funny thing is, this you know, there Nixon was having conversations with Billy Graham about 
the Jews and their bad influence and Jewish power while he had Kissinger as his right-hand man. I mean, you know, conservatives, right? Yeah, yeah. This this guy, he's an absolute... Uh, He's an absolute legend and a, and a, and a, a demon. <laughs> one of the worst, one of the worst Jews in American history. We'll go through a couple of things about his, well, there's a few. He looks like a, like a, he had those sleepy eyes, those weird eyes, you know, uh, looked like his eyes were half closed all the time. And I remember he, hearing one thing about him. There was a, there was a book that was a, a big seller decades ago by a uh it's called the happy hooker by this uh i think her name was hollander or something anyway she was a famous high dollar call girl and and she you know had all these uh politicians and wealthy people and stuff and one of the things that came out she said henry kissinger was a client of hers and she said he had the worst breath of anybody she ever was around. <laughs> We're just a funny little aside. Well, he's the one that famously coined the, the thing that power is the greatest aphrodisiac of all, which is really disgusting when you picture this, this like, this repulsive Jewish demon, uh, with his foul stinking breath, like with these hookers, like, like getting off on his own power. I mean, it's just that pure evil. Pure evil, this guy. It's like all the Jews in uh, Hollywood, all those uh, producers years ago, uh, Goldwyn Mayer and all, and all those. And you had every, you know, all across America, rural America, pretty girl in the high school. She gets elected. She, she's the, the queen of the high school. And all these girls think there's something special from their little town. And a lot of them found their way to Hollywood, think they can make a Hollywood. And you had all these satanic jew producers just waiting for him like a like a spider you know with a web and and uh these girls coming from everywhere and i'm just just using them and you know a, a tiny few made it big but how many of them were just used and abused by these disgusting jews and that's what the Me Too thing was about. I mean, it was a long-established tradition. It was a decades and decades old, Everybody old Hollywood it. tradition. Everybody yeah. knew it. The casting couch and everything. Yeah. So just real quick, before we get to there's this very good article actually in the Huffington Post about uh, Kissinger's war crimes. But there was a Politico article about uh, world leaders or U.S. leaders react to the death of Henry Kissinger. And it says current and former Republican politicians were among the first to issue tributes on the life of Henry Kissinger. Quote, America has lost one of the most dependable and distinctive voices on foreign affairs with the passing of Henry Kissinger, said former President George W. Bush in a statement. Uh, then uh, <laughs> Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said during a meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Thursday that Kissinger, quote, really set the standard for everyone who followed in his job. Well, I, wait a minute. I thought I said Republicans uh, Republicans were paying tribute. So there's Blinken. You know, Emily and I got into him a little bit when we did the thing on when Madeleine Albright died. But and how much this this tradition of the, the Jewification of the State Department. We, we know a guy who worked for, for decades in the State Department during this period. And uh, he watched it happen in the Cold War in his lifetime where it went from being 
still kind of goy dominated to completely Jew, Jew dominated. And Kissinger, I'm sure, was was like the big uh, part of that. Um, Blinken said, I was very privileged to get his counsel many times, including as recently as about a month ago. He was an extraordinarily generous with his wisdom, with his advice. Few people were better students of history. Even fewer people did more to shape history. And then uh, Blinken added in another statement, Henry made countless history-bending decisions. To serve as America's chief diplomat today is to move through the world that bears Henry's lasting imprint, from the relationships he forged, the tools he pioneered, to the architecture he built. Um, Apparently him being a Jew trumps him being a Republican Yeah, for Blinken. Yeah. Mitch McConnell called him a titan among America's most consequential statement, statesmen. His ideas, his diplomatic skill, his sheer force of will in service to our country changed the course of history. Um, Mike Johnson, you know, going crazy. Uh, Chris Christie called him a good friend and mentor who was a brilliant voice for the indispensable role America must play in the world. Uh, yeah, this... This guy, I mean, I don't know how anybody can even defend him. So let's get into the war crimes. So this is from the Huffington Post. It says that uh, Henry Kissinger, the, the article is Henry Kissinger, America's most notorious war criminal, dies at 100. The titan of American foreign policy was complicit in millions of deaths and never showed remorse for his decisions. All right. So this is a little more accurate. Henry Kissinger, who has top American foreign policy uh, official oversaw, overlooked, and at times actively participated in some of the most grotesque war crimes the United States and its allies have committed. Um, served as Secretary of State and National Security Advisor under Presidents Rickson, Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. How old were you in the Nixon administration? Uh, I forget when he first got in, but he was... I know when I first got out, when I got out of high school in 71, 72, that, that's when the, uh, the Watergate stuff, I guess, I think the Watergate was 72, was it? Or? Yeah. Well, he was, uh, he was vice president, uh, or no, I'm sorry. He wasn't vice president. He was the president of the United States. Oh, um, uh, wait a minute. Third, he was the 37th president of the United States. In all, there it is. In our office, January 20th, 1969 to August 6th, 1974. Okay, yeah, because Wallace, uh, George Wallace ran against him in 68, and uh, Humphrey, Hubert Humphrey was the Democrat. And uh, a lot of people voted for Nixon because they were afraid Humphrey would get in, and that took uh, votes from Wallace. Wallace won five states. And I forget how many million votes he got, but he came very close to winning more states. He came in second in in, in a number of states. And they say it's because it, people, you know, same old thing. Uh, people didn't want the, the Democrat, the, the liberal, super liberal Hubert Humphrey to get in. But yeah, he, he was, I was in uh, 10th grade in 68. Uh, six, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was like eleventh grade or something. So I'm I'm curious because uh, I'm uh, when um, yeah okay. So this is interesting. Richard Nixon is how Henry Kissinger got in the door. 
right. to American foreign policy. Now, that's interesting for multiple reasons. First of all, it's interesting because uh, Pat Buchanan was Nixon's speechwriter, wasn't he? So Buchanan yeah. was, was, was in there. Um, and, of course, Nixon, we know the famous thing, the Billy Graham conversations that we've talked about many times that happened in 1972 when he was talking to him about how powerful the Jews are and Jewish power and what a problem it is. Um, if you look at Henry Kissinger's uh, Wikipedia here, it says that he, um, you know, he was at Harvard, he was doing these different things, and uh, then uh, worked for the Rockefeller Brothers Fund as director of its special studies project, did all this stuff, um, did research for the think tanks, the Rand Corporation, keen to have a greater influence on U.S. foreign policy. Kissinger became foreign policy advisor to the presidential campaigns of Nelson Rockefeller, supporting his bids for the Republican nomination in 1960, 64, and 68. He had, he had a role in the denazification thing after the war in Germany. Oh, I, did he? Yes, he did. I, I know. Oh, well, you can go back and look at that. Well, I know, well, you know, Hitler drove him out of Germany. That's, right, that's how he right. started. Yeah. And we can talk about that. Uh, Kissinger first met Richard Nixon at a party hosted by Claire Booth Lucy in 1967, saying he found him more thoughtful than he expected. And, uh, then, he had called Nixon in July 1968 because he was still working for a foreign policy advisor for Rockefeller. He called Nixon the most dangerous of all the men running to have as president. Initially upset when Nixon won the Republican nomination, the ambitious Kissinger soon changed his mind about Nixon and contacted a Nixon campaign aide, Richard Allen, to state he was willing to do anything to help Nixon win. <laughs> now, this reminds me of uh, like Randy Fine in Florida, who was who was attached to to uh, uh, DeSantis and just dumped him for Trump because he thinks Trump's going to win, right? Uh, after Nixon became president in January 1969, Nick Kissinger was appointed as national security advisor. By this time, he was arguably one of the most important theorists about foreign policy ever to be produced by the United States of America, according to his biographer. Yeah, what's, the, what's, what's the behind-the-scenes story of that? How does he get appointed national security advisor? Yeah. Yeah. How did Nixon settle on that? On well, it's, him? well, it yeah. says, um, it says that Kissinger served as national security advisor and secretary of state under President Nixon and continued as secretary of state under Nixon's successor, Gerald Ford. Uh, the relationship between Nixon and Kissinger was unusually close and has been compared to the relationships of Woodrow Wilson, Wilson and Colonel House or Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Hopkins. In all three cases, the State Department was relegated to a back-seat role in developing foreign policy. Kissinger and Nixon shared a pension for secrecy and conducted numerous back-channel negotiations, etc. Fascinating pair. They complemented each other perfectly. Um, this is a historian writing. Kissinger was the charming and worldly Mr. Outside who provided the grace and intellectual establishment respectability that Nixon lacked, disdained, and aspired to. Kissinger was an international citizen. Nixon was very much a classic American. Kissinger had a worldview and a facility for adjusting to it to meet the times. Nixon had pragmatism and a strategic vision that provided the foundations for their policies. Kissinger would, of course, say that he was not political like Nixon, but in fact he was just as political as Nixon, just as calculating, just as relentlessly ambitious. These self-made men were driven as much by their need for approval and their neuro neuroses as by their strengths. So, 
he then dominates U.S. foreign policy from 1969 to 1977. Hey, you're still listening to only half the show? Get behind the paywall and get the rest of the story. You have no idea how much content you're missing. Go to the rightstuff.biz slash paywall and let's fix that. And the big thing Nixon, you could say, is is responsible for is the rise of China in the position that, that China's in today. So, so again, uh, Nixon, who has – Pat Buchanan is a speechwriter who's talking to Billy Graham about how the Jews have, have too much power. Nixon is how this Jew Kissinger inserts himself into the American foreign policy establishment – and then stays long after Nixon is out of office. I, I remember pictures. Uh, they were on Newsweek, Time Magazine, of Nixon clinking champagne glasses with Mao Zedong. You know, it was Kiss, Kissinger's uh, work. Yeah. Behind the scenes. It, it's funny, this big anti-communist Nixon, and he, he's the one that really set up China, opened a you know, trade with him and and they are what they are today, it started with Nixon. And it's funny, too, it says that during the the, uh, Watergate scandal, that Nixon was, uh, his power grew during the turmoil of Watergate when the politically attuned diplomat took on a role akin to co-president to this discredited Nixon. No doubt my vanity was piqued, Kissinger later wrote of his expanding influence during Watergate, but the dominant emotion was a premonition of catastrophe. But so, basically, uh, <laughs> basically he, he, during, during Watergate, um, he actually gained power. So Watergate was, was really, it was like largely the media and the Jewish media and everything going after Nixon. Right. And then you have, and then you have this guy rising within, you know, and then, and then outlasts and survives, uh, uh, Nixon. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, you know, the interesting thing is that, uh, Huffington Post article, they're saying how he killed responsible for the deaths of millions of people. Right. Yeah. I, I was thinking that if you ask these the liberals at Huffington Post, would you kill baby Henry Kissinger? <laughs> I mean, that would it would have saved millions of lives, right? right? Right, right. That's a good. That's a good. What if? Well, let's go back to the Huffington Post article. Um, so he started under Nixon and then went through Gerald Ford positions that allo- that allowed him to direct the Vietnam War and the broader Cold War with the Soviet Union and implement a stridently realist approach that prioritized U.S. interests and domestic political success over any potential atrocity that might occur. And this is the big myth about Nixon. And this is what I said in that in that show we Emily and I did about Madeleine Albright, is that the idea of realist, it, it, it's such one, it's so like fake. It's one of these, it's like, it's like Elon Musk this week. Elon Musk, you know, tells the advertisers to go fuck themselves. At the same time, he, he apologizes for an anti-Semitic tweet. So the big story and the big idea that's in most people's heads is that Elon Musk is saying radical things and letting all kinds of radicals on Twitter and is, you know, is this free speech nut. 
while he's actually kowtowing to the Jews and banning, and he's suing, you know, for defamation over, over the idea that he's allows Nazis on his platform, meaning like that's, you're defaming me because I don't allow Nazis on my platform. Here's a list of all the ones that I've banned. So therefore I can sue you. Um, this idea of the realist foreign policy, I really hate it because it comes from the German uh, idea of realpolitik and uh and 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 there is you know realism as a as a foreign policy school you know goes back to to Machiavelli um but it's like the idea has to be it's good for for you for your nation you know for your people so so it's like in an amoral international environment where strength is the only thing that counts and it's a survival of the fittest and it's dog eat dog you, well, that, that's what Kissinger was doing. It was good for his, his people. For his people, right. And that's, that's the thing. It's like, if you study American politics and history and foreign policy, just strictly as the, what's good or bad for the American people, it doesn't make sense. There's so many foreign policy decisions that don't make sense. You know, one, one of the things we talked about is the idea that, um, Russia was for all its, you know, ideological problems during the Cold War, Russia was still a mostly white world power. So, you know, during the Cold War, you could say, well, yeah, these are the two powers that defeated Ger Nazi Germany and, and, and occupied Europe, and they're both rotten. But relatively speaking, it's still, even if it's not no longer after World War II, even if it's no longer a European-dominated world, it's still a white-dominated world. I mean, Khrushchev was white, Kennedy was white, you know, and these are the two white titans that control the planet. So, yeah, leave it to Kissinger to to pivot to China, you know, create this rise of China, which now they're all, like, screaming about, um, at the expense of Russia, you know, and, at the expense of a white, of a white world power, you know. And a, uh, well, and a few decades before that, all the powerful Jews were pro-Soviet. Yeah. So they can switch, they can switch sides, no problem. Yeah, but it's not it's not realism applied to you know the the, the idea of realpolitik. I guess here it is. It was coined in uh, 1853 by a German, and it says principles of realpolitik applied to the national state of affairs of Germany. The study of the forces that shape. This is a def his definition of realpolitik. This was uh, Ludwig von Rachau. The study of the forces that shape, maintain, and alter the state is the basis of all political insight and leads to the understanding that the law of power governs the world of states just as the law of gravity governs the physical world. The older political science was fully aware of this truth but drew a wrong and detrimental conclusion, the right of the more powerful. The modern era has corrected this unethical fallacy while Break, but while breaking with the alleged right of the more powerful one, the modern era was too much inclined to overlook the real might of the more powerful and the inevitability of its political influence. So, you know, recognizing the real might of the powerful is the decisive factor in, in foreign policy. The whole, uh, if you, if you go to college for, you know, this type of thing, international studies, I've talked about this many times, but the, the whole, uh, dichotomy this was big during the bush years when i was in school the whole dichotomy between a realist and idealist foreign policy it's so fake 
I mean, it's just as fake as the Republicans versus the Democrats or the liberals versus the conservatives because the idealist foreign policy is Paul Wolfowitz Jews wanting to wage crusades in the name of liberalism, which is actually just advancing the, 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 the international Jewish interests versus the, the realist foreign policy is like Henry Kissinger, the other Jew that's just ruthlessly pursuing Jewish interests in the, in command of, I mean, I always, I always like to think about what was that game you wouldn't know, but the, there was a, the first person shooter, or I, it wasn't, it wasn't Halo. It was the one, uh, oh God, you guys know the one from the early aughts, the first person shooter where there was these zombie guys running around with like creatures attached to their heads. So it was like an alien attached to a guy's head and the alien controlling his brain and the guy's running around shooting at you, but they, it's actually the body is just like a vessel for the, the creature controlling its brain. Um, that, that's, that's what sounds anti-Semitic. Well, that's what this, that's what this foreign policy, this realist foreign policy, uh, was. So yeah, when you speak of a German realist foreign policy in Bismarck's time, you're speaking of the German people and what's good for Germany. Um, but, but the whole, you know, Kissinger as realist, it's fake. It's bullshit. He wasn't a real, I mean, nothing he did really actually helped the American people. Look at the era in which he was born. And look at the, you could say, well, American power has grown. Well, yeah, but look at the condition of the American people. Well, yeah, look at, look at America when I was in high school, 1968, 1969, when Kissinger was on the rise. Look at that America and look at it now. Or look at it at the end of his t- tenure in this, in the State Department, 1977. So look at well, from, it's been, yeah, it's been downhill ever since at least the end of the second world war. Yeah. So this guy, uh, that, that I hate that, but anyway, so realist, realist foreign policy. Um, anyway, um, so this realist approach, this is back to the Huffington post led to perhaps the most infamous crime Kissinger committed a secret four year bombing campaign in Cambodia that killed an untold number of civilians, despite the fact that it was a neutral nation with which the United States was not at war. During his time in charge of the American foreign policy machine, Kissinger also directed illegal arms sales to Pakistan as it carried out a brutal crackdown on its Bengali population in 1971. He supported the 1973 military coup that overthrew a democratically elected socialist government in Chile, gave the go-ahead to Indonesia's 1975 invasion of East Timor, and backed Argentina's repressive military dictatorship as it launched its dirty war against dissenters and leftists in 1976. His policies during the Ford administration also fueled civil wars in Africa and most notably in Angola. Even the most generous calculations suggest that the murderous regimes Kissinger supported and the conflicts they waged were responsible for millions of deaths and millions of other human rights abuses during and after the eight years he served in the American government. Kissinger never showed remorse for those misdeeds. He never paid any real price for them either. He maintained a mocking tone towards critics of his human rights record throughout his life and remained a member in good standing of elite Washington political society until his death. In May 2016, for instance, President Barack Obama came as close as the United States ever does to apologizing for its role in a human rights atrocity during a visit to Argentina. U.S. The U.S., quote, has to examine its own policies as well and its own past, Obama said expression of regret in the U.S. role in the dirty war. 
Um, but, but it says the examination must have been quick. Two months later, yeah. the Obama administration handed Kissinger, who's do- who who those documents showed had cozied up to Argentine military dictator Jorge Rafael Videla in the 1970s, the Distinguished Public Service Award, the highest honor the Pentagon offers civilians. uh, Kissinger's acolytes argue that honors like these are more than deserved. His accomplishments, including during an opening of relations with China and detente with the Soviet Union, outweigh any abuses that helped make them possible. At the very least, they posit the abuses were part of a cold calculation that ensuring a nation's survival sometimes leaves tragically little room for private morality. I mean, as Robert, as Robert Kaplan argued in 2013. I mean, Russia and China, that everybody, they're all wringing their hands over Russia and China now. So how can anybody be saying, I mean, even from their point of view, right? Right. You know, yeah. Um, (laughs) <laughs> his critics have made persuasive cases in numerous books, documentaries, publications. He was not just a war criminal, but responsible for the creation of an imperial foreign policy that eventually embroiled the U.S. in a state of perpetual war and led it to commit and overlook numerous abuses of human rights in the decades after he left power. And there's a picture here of Barack Obama, and and next to him is Kissinger and Madeleine Albright. And they look so creepy and sinister, the two of them. I mean, Kissinger's really fat like a big old reptile and, and Albright's there. And it's just like, well, you said it before the show started. Dad was like, look at that. Two Jews and a nigger. <laughs> it's really, I mean, it's just unbelievable. This is this America and, and all the people, all the ethnicities, all the millions of people, Irish, Germans, Polish, you, you know, on and on and on. And, and you have a, a Negro and two Jews sitting there with all this power. Right. Well, I, what a disgrace. I mean, it's. And then here's the funny thing. It talks about all the uh, Argentinians, Bangladeshis, Cambodians, Chileans, East Timorese, and others uh, that died. Then it says, uh, this is it. Born Heinz Alfred Kissinger, Kissinger, I guess it would have been in Bavaria in 1923. Uh, we just did a show about Bavaria in 1923. Kissinger and his family immigrated to the United States in 1938 to flee Nazi persecution of German Jews. Kissinger forever downplayed the effect that had on his life, but historians have argued differently. Kissinger's experience as a child likely shaped his, quote, legendary insecurity, paranoia, and extreme sensitivity to criticism and planted the seeds of his, quote, emphasis on stability and equilibrium and his fears about revolution and disorder, uh, written by uh, Thomas Schwartz, a Vanderbilt University historian who wrote a biography about him. Kissinger's father was a teacher fired for being Jewish and this uh, contributed to Kissinger's own sense. He was not that not only do the meek not inherit the earth, but power is the ultimate arbiter in both life and international relations. And uh, it's funny because he, he was drafted in the army, but then he served in Germany as an intelligence agent. So again, Sven needs me. To sign up for a paywall subscription at the rightstuff.biz slash paywall. Okay, Sven, I'm your number one guy. I'll do it. The classic thing that all the Jews were in these, these roles, they were, their, their, their job is to go in with the, what was it? The OSS, uh, uh, the, the precursor to the CIA and then go in and inter- interrogate Germans because they could speak German and then come home as a 
Jewish war veteran. A Jewish war veteran. Uh, yeah. He earned a bronze star in part for his success in hunting down members of the Gestapo in the immediate. I'm sure he was pistol in hand, like kicking down doors, finding hey, Gestapo. You know, again, I, I forget when we did that Madeleine Albright thing, but we got into this a little bit. Emily and I did as far as his, uh, it, it, it was funny how, um, Hitler youth gangs had said beat him up. And, uh, he was, he was, uh, oh, Wikipedia. yeah, this is the Wikipedia. He said this, he said that Germany, he wrote about his growing up. The Germany of my youth had a great deal of order and very little justice. It was not the sort of place likely to inspire devotion to order in the abstract. Um, and then he went to, uh, Washington Heights section of upper Manhattan part of the German Jewish immigrant community at the time. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, went into the army and then from there got into, uh, military intelligence. So it's funny because you, you see how that this guy started out. Yeah. The counterintelligence corps, CIC, um, he was a special agent and then, uh, where was it? June 1945, Kissinger made commandant of the Benshim Metro CIC Detachment, uh, Bergstrasse District of Hesse, with responsibility for denazification of the district. So, uh, he was literally a, like a denazification official. And then went to, went to Harvard after that in 1950, and then, and then this, this meteoric rise. But I mean, Obviously, uh, his entire, Kissinger's entire approach to everything was shaped by Hitler, was shaped by a reaction to Hitler. And then, you know, it's funny because the same is true of Madeleine Albright. If you study her life, like her whole everything is, is like an anti-Hitler foreign policy. You know, I mean, these kind of Jews, they say, well, that's, you know, the lesson of Hitler shows us that you have to be amoral in your, in your approach to like international threats. You know, the interesting thing is, and I'm sure Kissinger was asked about this or wrote about this. I actually, uh, I saw in an interview, um, it was in The Economist where he was talking about this. But the interesting thing is, uh, what would Kissinger's, how would Kissinger's realism have applied to Nazi Germany? America's relationship to Nazi Germany. I mean, would, you know, wouldn't the realist approach be to ally with Germany against the British Empire so that you could gobble up all the British Empire's international holdings while they're at war with Germany? Or wouldn't, or wouldn't your policy be to align yourselves economically or strategically with Germany to defeat the Soviet Union, which was a much larger threat to the, to the world? You know, no. I mean, Kissinger's the type would support any, anything against, including like sacrificing American national interests to defeat Nazi Germany no because how unrealist <laughs> unrealist it is. It's realist for a Jew, but it's not realist for the Goy Americans. Yeah. Yeah. And, and once again, people like liberals like at the Huffington Post, if, if Kissinger was so bad, I mean, maybe, uh, maybe the Nazis had a right idea kicking a guy like that. People like that out of their country. Yeah. I mean, why would you want somebody like this to remain in your country? Yeah. Uh, so, 
After returning to the U.S., this is back to Huffington Post, graduating from Harvard, he fast-tracked his way to foreign policy influence, initially gaining fame within the establishment by arguing President Dwight D. Eisenhower needed to accept that, quote, limited nuclear war in Europe might be necessary to protect the U.S. and its allies from the emerging power of the Soviet Union. You really are madmen. Well, and you know, and then he says power is the ultimate aphrodisiac, and then you have that whore talking about his smelly breath. So it's like, you know, it's pretty easy to connect the dots here. Um, you know, says, uh, his rapid ascent up the foreign policy ladder was also possible because he was such a skilled political operator. Again, what's the role of Jewish nepotism in this, uh, in this, in this rise to power? Um, anyway, yeah, celebrity diplomat. Here it is, the details of this. Um, in the spring of 1969, desperate to bring an end to the Vietnam War, Kissinger authorized one of its most horrific chapters, the secret carpet bombing campaign in Cambodia. The theory was that it would force North Vietnam to accept improved U.S. Con- conditions for ending the war. An early use of a, quote, bombs as an instrument of diplomacy, unquote, approach, as Yale historian and fierce Kissinger critic Greg Grandin has described it that became a hallmark of U.S. foreign policy. Well, it was already a hallmark of, of U.S. foreign policy, Huffington Post, I mean, under under FDR, uh, bombs as, I mean, that I've, I've said this many times, that will be the legacy of the U.S. power from 1941, in, actually up to the present day with, 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 with Ukraine. The legacy of America on the world stage will be bombs as an instrument of diplomacy or bombs as an instrument of policy. Uh, From 69 to 73, when a Congress that had been largely kept in the dark about the Cambodian campaign moved to halt it, the United States dropped a half million tons of bombs on the neutral country. Kissinger personally, quote, approved each of the 3,875 Cambodia bombing raids that occurred between 1969 and 1970, according to a Pentagon report released later. Again, think of the the thing in Gaza right now. You know, I saw a video, I think it was Kim Iverson, somebody said that, that this, the, this campaign in Gaza uh, was the highest civilian-to-soldier Com, to, to, civilian to, to, to combatant death ratio of any war ever in all of history, you know, according to this, to this, uh, this one calculation, looking at the number of civilians killed by the Israeli bombing of Gaza versus the number of militants or combatants killed with Hamas. Uh, the, well, I don't know what the ratio is, but, and that's all with the blessing of the U.S. government. Yeah, the bombing campaign in Cambodia ultimately killed between 150,000 to a half million Cambodian civilians. This is a neutral country. It's a neutral country. Again, you know what that reminds me of? The amount of civilians killed by the by the U.S. bombing in France during World War II. What, what was the number? It's like fi- more than 50,000. It's like more than the number of Americans killed in Vietnam. S- French civilians. French civilians who are supposed to be our allies killed by Allied bombing, U.S. bombing in France. I forget what the, what the total is. I'll look it up real quick. But it's like, again, this will be, uh, let me just find this real quick. Um, 
Millions, World War II. I always forget the number. Um, oh, yeah, here it is. One French historian estimates that more than 50,000 men, women, and children died. During 1943 alone, some 7,458 French civilians were killed by Allied bombing in France. The total number of dead could be as high as 70,000. More than 100,000 were wounded. Bombing of France during World War II. So, uh, in, in all, 1,570 French cities and towns were bombed by the Allies between June 1940 and May 1945. The total number of civilians killed, French civilians killed by the Allies. Again, all oh, the French resistance, the noble French resistance against the evil Nazi here, here come our liberators. Yeah, here come the liberators. The total number of civilians killed. This is Wikipedia, was at least 68,778 men, women, and children, including 2,700 civilians killed in Royan. How many, you know, Netanyahu, like this is the equivalent of 10 9-11s for us. The total number of injured, more than 100,000. The total number of houses in France completely destroyed by the bombings was 432,000 houses. The total number of partly destroyed houses was 890,000. The cities that saw the most destruction were the following. Saint-Nazaire, 100% destroyed. Tilia-Champagne, uh, which is now Cavados, 96% destroyed. Calais, 95%. Vier, 95%. Royan, 95%. It goes down this list. Um, and the bombing of, in Normandy before and after D-Day were especially devastating. The French historian, French historian says 20,000 civilians were killed in Calvados department, 10,000 in San Maritime, 14,800 in the Manche, 4,200 in the Orne, around 3,000 in the Ur. Altogether, that makes more than 50,000 killed. Um, that's, that's again, so we have like, 70,000, let's say, 70,000 French killed. That's a bomb, bombing of France during World War II in Wikipedia. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, so, so this is their, this is their policy. Uh, and, and here you have this Cambodian bombing, uh, with this Jew. Again, a neutral country. We're not at war with them. Ultimately kills between 150,000 and half a million Cambodians. It also helped unleash a civil war inside Cambodia that led to the rise of the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot, a dictator whose regime killed as many as 2 million Cambodians, according to modern appraisals. And there's a picture here, a uh, Cambodian landscape in 1968 showing the damage inflicted by B-52 bombers. It's like totally devastated. Um, and Kissinger got the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then when people say this is, the United States is the great Satan. The response is they hate our way of life. They hate our freedom. Yeah. yeah they hate our freedoms. Um, then, um, uh, let's see. Okay. Yeah. Here we go. Um, think of the, think of the jobs making all those bombs created. Yeah. It goes into the thing of the Bengalis in Pakistan. We don't need to get into that right now. And the Lende and, uh, um, the coup, the Pinochet coup. That's why Pinochet. I remember in the early days of the of the alt right when the throwing leftists out of helicopters was a big meme. But it's uh, you know Pinochet wasn't all that based. 
There he is shaking hands with this picture of him shaking hands with Kissinger. Um, he looks like he's wearing one of those. Go back to that picture. He looks like he's wearing one of those fake glasses with a nose. Like the Mark, I mean, the Mar- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Groucho Marx glasses yeah, and nose. Yeah, 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 yeah. He literally looks that one. <laughs> yeah. um, I can't believe he lived to be 100. Well, it's because we didn't take power in time. Had we taken power in time, he wouldn't have lived to be 100. Uh, yeah, a little aside that there was, it came out, uh, when all that stuff with the order went down that uh he was on a Bob Matthews had him on a short list. See, yeah, that's a yeah, that that would have been that would have been like the the absolute cherry on top with the order. If if the order had been resp Bob Matthews had been responsible for taking out Henry Kissinger. I think we could say that. It's not Fed posting. They're both long now dead. Um but, uh, you know, in, in a, in a historical like scenario, what if, uh, you know, no, I did hear them say that about the order that Alan Berg was basically like target practice for, for bigger fish up the chain. So again, what would the Huffington Post have said about that? You know, I mean, was Bob Matthews an evil, uh, Nazi terrorist or had he bumped off Kissinger though? Wouldn't have that have made him a, a, a hero? I mean, that's what's the, you know, get your story straight. Yeah. Right. Can't have it both ways. Uh, yeah, I'm just going down here. Um, Kissinger, yeah, it's talking about Indonesia. It goes through the rest of the details. Again, we don't have to continue, but then it says that um, he, uh, he, you know, he had this lasting influence on the State Department, which that's the other thing. It's like, how does this guy get to continue to influence the State Department after he's out of office? Well, first of all, well, yeah, I mean, it's just no doubt Kissinger knew these many abuses were taking place throughout his career. Yeah, ask how does he continue to have that kind of influence? But it's like that the conversation between uh, Dietrich Eckhart and our favorite uncle, where he said it, it, it's like, you know, looking at history, uh, it's like a, a, a when you're studying the stars and you see like a heavenly body, astronomers, they see it doing something they can't explain. It's, it's going in a weird orbit or something. And then after. If you're hearing this, then you're only getting half the show. Did you know that the right stuff biz is 100% listener funded? Thanks to this censorship machine, this project can only be sustained by listeners like you, by supporters like you. So why don't you get behind the paywall at the right stuff biz slash paywall. And show the powers that be that they can't silence the most silenced. Careful observation or more powerful telescope. They realize there's another heavenly body that has this gravitational pull. And all of a sudden these motions are explained. And he said that that's what like being Jew wise is. When you look yeah. at history and you wonder why, why did this happen like that? Why did they do this? You know, this doesn't make sense. And when you, when you become conscious of the Jewish role in things, all of a sudden, so many things make sense. Yeah. Yeah, it says that uh, as Kissinger plotted an overthrow of Allende's government in Chile, a National Security Council official warned it was patently a violation of our own principles and policy tenets, but the warnings did nothing to stop Kissinger from fomenting coups and singing the praises of those who committed atrocities. Kissinger believed those atrocities were worth it, both to stop the spread of Soviet communism and bolster American interests and credibility in the world. 
you know, the funny thing about that is it's, it's, it's echoes, uh, Madeleine Albright, who was really like a student of his saying the thing about the, the fifth, you know, 500,000 Iraqi kids that died in the thing saying, we think it was, it was difficult, but it was worth it. Um, I mean, this guy's like, he's, he's a K, a chaos warrior, but he's not a war. He's like a chaos tapeworm or something. Yeah. A chaos agent, a fucking absolute, just, it's like a human demon yeah. just unleashing chaos on the world uh says that um kissinger's defenders argue that his critics now treat the west's victory in the cold war as a foregone conclusion that across the world revolutionary nihilists were busy massacring people too but again did the west come out on top in the cold war the west i mean how did the west come out on top and look at the state of the west today like you said when kissinger got in in 1969, look at the state of the West now versus then. I mean, if this is victory, I'd hate to see what defeat looks like. Anyway, again, Russia today outlawed LGBT ideology as extremist. I mean, Russia took a position like straight out of the NJP playbook on uh, the LGBT shit. Um, let me find it. This was one of my things I wanted to talk about. Russia's top court bans the international LGBTQ movement as extremist. Human rights activists say it's uh, the wording provides wide scope for persecution. Uh, Russia's Supreme Court outlawed, this is the Guardian, outlawed what it called an international LGBT public movement as extremist in a landmark ruling that representatives of gay and transgender people warn will lead to arrest and prosecution. Uh, effectively outlaws LGBTQ plus activism in the country. Um, and it means that gay, lesbian, transgender, or queer people living in Russia could receive lengthy prison sentences if deemed by the authorities to be part of the so-called international LGBT public movement. So, I mean, just on the basis of this alone, it's like the West won, you know, did the West, the, the West won, uh, the Cold War, the West came out on top. I mean, better to lose to, 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 and, and actually be, you know, not in this American Zog empire than to win and then you, your whole country is, well, is it's destroyed. It's like these so-called Christians quoting the Bible saying, if, oh, if you go against the Jews, like bad thing, Bible says bad things will befall you. Well, we've certainly been good to them here and then look at us. Yeah, yeah, I mean, oh, yeah, 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 exactly. Now, the, you know, after the Obama picture, here's another picture, Kissinger with George W. Bush, who leaned, George W. Bush, who leaned on the former official as an informal advisor throughout the administration's global war on terror. Kissinger was an ardent supporter of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Again, another miserable failure. A total miserable failure. So, so basically, China's our big enemy, right? Our adversary, Belt and Road Initiative. They have a more powerful Navy than we do. And Kissinger's responsible for that, for, for pushing China up to the position they are in the world. He's, he, and then he's ardent supporter of the war in Iraq, which, which like completely, we're still dealing with the aftermath of that. Um, and again, what is, what is the common thread? Like, why would Kissinger support this? Because here's the other thing. Oh, I just thought of it. Wasn't the war in Iraq a project of the neocons? And aren't the neocons? The famous idealists 
the idealists who are so opposed to the realists, right? So Paul Wolfowitz is the big idealist. He's not, he's not, he doesn't believe in doing things for, for, for ruthlessly calculating what's in American national security interests. No, he's, he's spreading democracy in the, this is the whole neocon thing. Is it there, uh, even, uh, what's his name? The, the one, uh, 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 Kagan. No, Kagan, uh, the one with the Ukraine war and, and Victoria Newland's husband. These are foreign policy idealists. So their whole thing is to spread democracy and human rights and freedom and liberty throughout the world. And that's why we, we you know, they wanted to do the neocon thing. So how is it that the big realist, Henry Kissinger, that's totally opposed to, to the idealist school of foreign policy, how is it that he is an ardent supporter of war in Iraq? What's the common thread between Kissinger and Wolfowitz? Yeah, I'll give you one guess, right? Now it's, it, it's, uh, it's really obvious when you're going to this stuff, what's happening here. It's just, we've allowed the Jews to take, they, they run everything. They run everything. And, and we're living in, in the result. And listen to this line. Kissinger's sense of bipartisanship never faltered. Hillary Clinton leaned on him for advice as Secretary of State and called him a friend. Samantha Power, who served as Obama's ambassador to the United Nations, often criticized him, yet in 2014 she attended a Yankees-Red Sox game with Kissinger and two years later accepted an award named for him. The Obama administration leaned on the bombing of Cambodia as the legal justification for its drone wars, including the killing of the targeted killing of American citizens abroad. Uh, that influence never waned. It makes it easy to see K- Kissinger's fingerprints on every ill or accomplishment, as his acolytes would say, that followed. But again, bipartisan... Well, how is there the bi? Again, what's the explanation there of the bipartisanship? Oh my God, this 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 is just. And this is the last thing. Much much like Kissinger, the architects of those disasters faced few, if any, meaningful repercussions. None. A country that so often predicates its concern for human rights on the specific humans in question, in which in which elite accountability for even the most blatant crimes and abuses is so rare seems to have made up its mind about morality's place in politics and public policy without much need for Kissinger's help. The, uh, yeah, this, this idea, I mean, these people will never face any consequences until there's a political revolution until in the United States. And then they will face consequences, but they're not going to face any consequences until then. I mean, anybody who is an acolyte of, of Henry Kissinger um, should be, uh, you know, in a, in a concentration camp. I mean, that's, that's, that's the safest place for people like that because it, look at, look at what you could prevent. You know, they often use the thing. Um, there's a line in Mein Kampf where Hitler says, you know, if at the war, at the beginning of the war, uh, these like traitors and mutineers or during the war, if, if these traitors and mutineers had just been like 20,000 of them had like been killed with poison gas, <laughs> How much bloodshed that would have saved on the battlefield, how much more lives that millions of lives that that would have saved, you know, and, it, and, and they always use that quote in Mein Kampf to say, oh, see, this shows Hitler had the Holocaust in mind from the beginning. No, but he's making a very simple point that the deaths of hundreds of thousands, millions of innocent people, uh, you know, can be prevented if you just eradicate a few awful warmongers like these guys, you know, or just get them out of power somehow. Um, Kissinger. It's, it's not just the death of so many innocent individuals, which is bad enough. 
But you're talking about the destruction of, of nations. Yeah. I mean, the long-term destruction of, of nation. Look at Iraq today. Look, look at Libya today and what it was prior to U.S., you know, assaulting them. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, and it's all the same school of thinking. That's why this Jew was hanging around for so long because he was, he was in sync with, with all these other Jews, yeah. neocons and, and, I mean, it just uh, never stops. When we get to this Napoleon thing, you'll see like the, the influence of how the Jews were, are thought, were thought of always as a separate element in foreign policy and in, 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 in American affairs, uh, or not American affairs, in world affairs. Um, but anyway, is there anything more here? But what do you remember? I mean, with, with Henry Kissinger, um, what was the American Nazi policy, the American Nazi party's policy on, uh, on, on Nixon and Cambodia and all that? Well, they would, because all the, uh, you know, there's a lot of guys in Vietnam and the leftists were all, uh, picketing it, you know, against war. But in retrospect, I think it was kind of a mistake. Uh, it was sort of a re- reactionary position. It was like support our troops type thing. But the way you would support your troops in a situation like that is, is bring them home, demand an end of the war. So, uh, I think from a, a nationalist point of view, the position should have been to bring the troops home also. Uh, but I remember, uh, Kissinger and, and Nixon, you know, was always in the news. I remember Nixon, there was a picture they had of, of him like hysteric. I don't know what it was over, but he was like hysterically laughing with Golda Meir. They were both like splitting their sides laughing so it, it just later on when i found out about all this billy graham stuff you know it, it always amazed me how could a guy like nixon have these kind of jews right around him and 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 uh well it's like trump you know trump talks all this stuff that most jews are would be against this populist sort of least civic nationalist type stuff and he always has these jews around him it it's uh didn't a Jew judge just order the reorder the gag order? I saw a headline and it had the this Jew judge and Trump's head side by side, and it was like this satanic looking demonic Jew grinning. And there's Trump, you know, making his like pouty face frown, and you just think this guy must know. This guy must know. They're really when you look at guys like Nixon or Trump, there really isn't any consistency with them. No, I, I mean they have one foot. You know, in a nationalist, uh, conservative, nationalist, populist camp. And then they got the other foot solidly in this you know, Jewish power camp. Yeah. Yeah. This, uh, yeah, but good riddance to this guy. It's a shame he didn't die, die much, much sooner. Um, and it's a shame those Hitler youth boys didn't beat him to death when he was a kid in Germany. Bob didn't get, get, get to go through that list. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it would have saved a lot. That's an interesting question. Forget baby Kissinger. Let's say in Nazi Germany, if the Hitler youth boys that he claimed to beat him up, it's probably bullshit. But, but if, if, if that, if, if he had, if some little Hitler youth thug had like whacked him, uh, you know, back then, or, you know, he hit his head on a pavement and he dies. Wouldn't that have saved 
all like you say, wouldn't it have saved like millions of lives? All these people. Well, there probably would have been another Jew to take his place, well, but of course. But uh, maybe he wouldn't have been as efficient and and as willing as as Kissinger was. No, oh, and he was uh, <laughs> he was twenty second Chancellor of the College of William and Mary uh, after after Margaret Thatcher. And he was chair of the 9-11 commission. Oh my God. Oh my God. His spouse's spouse, uh, Ann Fleischer. Um, yeah. Again, it's just, it's just very, um, it's very repulsive when you see these people. All the, all the elements are there. And the thing that's most amazing, yeah, there he is grinning with Mal. The most amazing thing is the consistency with like the, the preference for bombing. Um, from, from then to, to now with, uh, like the Gaza stuff. But anyway, guys, we're at pretty much at the end of hour one. There's a couple other news items I wanted to quickly, uh, cover before I get into the Napoleon thing. Um, we'll just do a quick, like fast roundup of a few items and then we'll dive into, uh, Napoleon and his, his, uh, relationship with the Jews and his position on the Jews as revealed by the, the mem- these amazing memoirs that I found. But, uh, Anyway, that's the end of this hour. Um, find us on the other side. Please subscribe, therightstuff.biz. If you're not a subscriber, if you are, uh, we will find you on the other side.